0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we return to the wonderfully wacky world of Elon Musk versus Twitter. Previously on Elon Musk, the Twitter saga, we had a playlist created that used to be called the buyout of Twitter and is now called the fallout from Twitter. In the last two episodes of that playlist, we talked about the fact that Elon Musk looked like he was planning his escape from the Twitter merger deal. And if you're not familiar with the topic at all, please do check out that playlist. Otherwise, just know that Elon Musk had signed up to a binding contract to purchase Twitter for just above $40 billion, not inclusive of what he already owned of that company. In these earlier videos from just a couple of months ago, we talked about the fact that Elon Musk had said in a tweet that the deal was on hold because he had concerns about the way Twitter was counting its spam and its fake users, what we will see called the MDAU, the Monetizable Daily Active Users of the Social Media Platform. And he expressed these concerns. We talked about him in that video, and I said, Well, this is kind of interesting. It seems to suggest that he's playing around a little bit. Those feelings got stronger as we moved into June, where we did a video on him calling for a material breach concept because Twitter was refusing to hand over, according to him, the information that he had requested to actually look at this data. In that June 6th letter, which is an important date to remember as we talk about what happened today, he finished off by saying, based on Twitter's behavior to date and the company's latest correspondence in particular, Mr. Musk believes the company is actively resisting and thwarting his information rights and the company's corresponding obligations under the merger agreement. This is a clear material breach of Twitter's obligations under the merger agreement, and Mr. Musk reserves all rights resulting therefrom, including his right not to consummate the transaction and his right to terminate the merger agreement. So after this was all signed up, it's been a very tumultuous first half of the year, both for Elon Musk and Twitter. We then started to see what looked like legal maneuverings to get him out of the deal. Now, why does he want to be out of the deal with legal maneuverings and not just walking away? Well, there's a number of reasons for that that we're going to talk about today. But suffice it to say, as of today, Elon Musk has officially at least attempted to walk away from the Twitter deal. And I will let you know why I'm providing that caveat towards the end of this video. As put forth here by Disclosed TV on Twitter, Elon Musk terminates his $44 billion Twitter deal, and then they provided the filing, which is why I'm linking to them here, because I love everybody that provides me with source material. Before we go into the letter in which Elon Musk, through his counsel, explains why he is permitted to terminate the agreement and why he is walking away right now, I think we're going to do this a little bit in reverse, because what does everybody care about Folks were linking this particular topic to me for the last two hours ad nauseum. And one of the questions that was on everybody's lips was, yo, Rick, didn't you say that there was a billion dollar guarantee on this? And indeed there is. Earlier in this very playlist, we talk about that guarantee and we talk about how it's quote unquote unconditional. There aren't the usual protections that would you would see in that kind of personal guarantee. So let's talk about that to start out with, because that is one of the reasons we see Elon Musk, through his counsel, operating the way he is right now and over the past 60 days or so. So right now on your screen is a snippet, a paragraph, a quotation from the top of the limited guarantee document that Mr. Musk entered into at the time he entered into the merger agreement. Now, while there aren't a lot of conditions on this, there are, of course, targeting provisions. What does this actually guarantee? What are we talking about here? And that's the most important point that we need to raise before we even talk about what the letter says, how this works within the merger agreement, and what might happen from here. So the limited guarantee of Elon Musk says to induce the guaranteed party to enter the merger agreement. So to convince Twitter to sign up to this deal, the guarantor hereby absolutely unconditionally and irrevocably guarantees to the guaranteed party. So Elon Musk promises to Twitter with as strong a legal language as you can put out there on the terms and conditions set forth herein, and we're not reading the whole limited guarantee again. I do cover a lot of it in an earlier video in this playlist. The due, complete, and punctual payment observance performance and discharge of the payment obligations of parent, that's Elon Musk's shell holding corporations that were being put together in order to affect this transaction, with respect to the parent termination fee and any other reimbursement, indemnification, or payment obligations of parent, provided that in no event shall the guarantor's maximum liability exceed a billion dollars minus what I might have already paid, if I'm Elon Musk, to Twitter for other reasons under the contract. that I'm personally guaranteeing $1 billion American dollars and not anything more. Now, you don't know that just from this document because this actually references defined terms that appear in the merger agreement. So one thing we have to make sure of is that the parent termination fee is that billion dollar number that we were otherwise concerned with. And indeed, it is. Parent termination fee here in the merger agreement shall mean an amount equal to to $1 billion. There's a lot of zero folks. I've never actually written that number in one of my contracts, but Mr. Elon Musk is on the hook, signed and sealed for $1 billion if there is an issue pursuant to what? Section 8.3B of the merger agreement, which means we have to look at section 8.3B. Here's 8.3B from that agreement. And it says, In the event that the agreement is terminated by the company pursuant to one of the sections or pursuant to one of the other sections, parent, which in the merger agreement is Elon Musk's companies, shall no later than two business days after the date of such termination pay or cause to be paid by wire transfer of immediately available funds at the direction of the company, the parent termination fee. So these are a little bit difficult to read. That's why I've kind of parsed them out in these sections. But suffice it to say, this says, if Twitter terminates the agreement for one of these reasons we're going to look at, then Elon Musk owes us a billion dollars. And what are those reasons that the company can terminate? Well, we're not so concerned with the second one, which basically says Twitter is ready to sign and be done. Nobody's ready to sign and be done in this deal. The first one, however, says if The parent acquisition sub or the equity investor, which for these purposes is Elon Musk, it's Elon Musk and his companies, shall have breached or failed to perform any of their respective representations, warranties, covenants, or other agreements as set forth in this agreement. Which breach or failure to perform would give rise to another failure in section 7.3a or 7.3b, where they promise that they'll do what they say they will do under the contract uh, and it's not curable, they can't fix it, then the company can terminate this whole arrangement. Which is a long, lawyerly, legal way of saying, look, if Elon Musk isn't doing what he said he would do, if he isn't bringing the debt financing or the money to the table, or as it turns out, if he says, I'm terminating this thing, then we can terminate the agreement. And if we terminate the agreement because he's not doing what he said he would do, then that triggers the payment of the parent termination fee. And because of the nature of the limited guarantee, Elon Musk owes us that money directly. So, If you're Elon Musk and you're his counsel and you've signed up to this limited guarantee, one of the things that is a major concern to you if you want to walk away from this deal is, how do I get out of that? Now most importantly, if you're Elon Musk, you're noticing that the payment of this billion dollar fee is all premised around the company terminating the deal. If I, Elon Musk, have a reason to terminate this transaction, we don't even ever wind up in these sections. We don't wind up in a situation where the agreement is terminated by the company at all, and so I can avoid paying that billion dollars, or so the theory goes. We'll talk about some of the fights to happen here, because Twitter, the Twitter board, maybe some other Twitter shareholders, they're not going to love that any of this is happening. This is, in a very real way, a kind of apocalypse for the board of directors of Twitter. We'll see that particularly at the end of the letter that Elon Musk and his counsel have prepared, establishing that Twitter is lying to us all, including the SEC, writ large in a public filing for all of us. This is going to be a litigation nightmare for the board, potentially for Elon Musk. And this playlist right now is not ended, and it won't likely be ended for a long time to come. But with that as background, talking about those billion dollars, why we are about to see what we are about to see, let's take a look at what is actually put forth in this letter. So here we have, again, on the the heading of Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom, one of the biggest legal firms in the United States, a statement that effectively amounts to a termination notice. Dear Ms. Gad, we refer to the agreement and plan of merger by and among X Holdings 1, X Holdings 2, and Twitter Inc. Dated as of April 25th, 2022. And our letter to you dated as of June 6th, 2022. That's the letter that I read the end of that said, hey, you need to give us this information. And right now we consider you to be in material breach. That's important for the way that this agreement actually operates. As further described below, Mr. Musk is terminating the merger agreement because Twitter is in material breach of multiple provisions of that agreement appears to have made false and misleading representations upon which Mr. Musk relied when entering into the merger agreement and is likely to suffer a company material adverse effect. And yes, all legalese, we're going to walk through those with you in this video, just like Skadden Arps is going to walk through them with Twitter. So they start out by saying, what is the breach here? What is Twitter breaching? While section 6.4 of the merger agreement requires Twitter to provide Mr. Musk and his advisors All data and information that Mr. Musk requests for any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transaction, Twitter has not complied with its contractual obligations. So there's a section that we've looked at in the past in this playlist in the merger agreement itself that says, hey, when I ask for something, you will provide it. Section 6.4 says, upon reasonable notice, the company, that's Twitter, shall, and shall cause any subsidiaries it might have, Afford access to the representatives, officers, directors, employees, agents, attorneys, accountants, and financial advisors of parent. You will let Elon Musk in the door. You will let Elon Musk review your records, and you will give that at reasonable access, and Elon Musk will pay for it. This isn't something that Twitter has to otherwise subsidize. What access will you be given? The properties, books, and records of the company and its subsidiaries, and Twitter shall furnish promptly to any such representatives, his professional crew, his lawyers, accountants, and whatnot. All information concerning the business properties and personnel of the company and its subsidiaries as may be reasonably required, requested in writing in each case for any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transactions contemplated by the agreement. Now there's a fight here and there will be a fight ongoing. And we've seen kind of it behind the scenes in the shadows of what Mr. Musk through his counsel is putting forth to the SEC that Twitter thinks that this should really be related to finalizing the deal. And this kind of manifests itself a little bit in those folks that you might've seen on social media, on the internet, or even in the comments here in virtual legality, saying something along the lines of Elon Musk waived his right to due diligence by entering into the merger agreement so quickly. And I've responded to that in comments, I've responded to that in this video series by saying, no, that isn't really the case. Because the merger agreement has covenants, has provisions like this one that says you'll turn over the information we ask for to consummate the deal. In general, there is still a diligence process that goes on even after signing the merger agreement, especially in a context like this one. Twitter, however... Disagrees. Twitter appears, based on what we can see in the letters, especially from the Musk side, to have said, no, this is only related to getting the thing done. This is only related to figuring out who the people are that need to move around, who needs to sign documents, more logistically operated to getting the deal consummated and something like waiving a real due diligence. Obviously, Elon Musk disagrees. I tend to side in terms of interpretation here with the Musk side of things that says, look, The language that the lawyers agreed to is any reasonable business purpose. That is really, really broad in a contract like this. And Twitter tries to hang its hat on the notion of related to the consummation of the transactions, but related to is again a very broad bit of legal legal language. Related to, a lot of things are related to the consummation of the transactions, including the buyer being happy with the data that is presented to him. So I think Elon Musk overall has a decent argument that he is entitled to this information. That doesn't mean that I think that this is the world's strongest termination letter here. So we'll we'll get to that as we continue. That's the section in the merger agreement that we're concerned with. While Section 6.4 requires Twitter to provide that information, Twitter has not complied with its contractual obligations. For nearly two months, Mr. Musk has sought the data and information necessary to make a quote unquote independent assessment of the prevalence of fake or spam accounts on Twitter's platform. This information is fundamental to Twitter's business and financial performance and is necessary to consummate the transactions contemplated by the merger agreement because it is needed to ensure Twitter's satisfaction of the conditions to closing, to facilitate Mr. Musk's financing and financial planning for the transaction, and to engage in transition planning for the business. Twitter has failed or refused to provide this information. Sometimes Twitter has ignored Mr. Musk's requests Sometimes it has rejected them for reasons that appear to be unjustified, and sometimes it has claimed to comply while giving Mr. Musk incomplete or unusable information. Now, that's all very strongly worded. You've got some lawyer talk here with the appear to be unjustified, that kind of thing. But a couple of things to note here. What they're going to have to establish is that Twitter has effectively abandoned their duties under this section 6.4. This is their main argument. We'll get into some of the other ones as we go through this letter, but that he asked for information about the monetizable active users. He didn't get that information in the format or with the quickness that he wanted from Twitter. And now he's walking away because they are in breach of their obligations to provide that information to him. However, what we'll also see as part of this letter is that They continue to communicate during that entire month and Twitter continues to give them certain things. And so there comes into it this kind of gray area legal question of, okay, the buyer can't just walk in and ask for information that doesn't exist and and do all these various things and then walk away uh, after having dragged the board and the company through the mud and done all this damage to the company's reputation. So where does that line sit? are Elon Musk's requests reasonable for what we would expect somebody that has just entered into this merger agreement to ask for? Or is Twitter in the right trying to respond to what is a mercurial buyer and is failing to do so? A lot of that would come out in kind of a litigation or discovery process. What did those internal communications look like? What is the request actually being made? Unfortunately, I can't answer those for you today, but that's what people would be looking at because folks have asked me on Twitter and other social media venues, can the board force this deal? And the answer to that is no, the board can't do it in and of itself, but they can sue. They can sue in two different directions, right? As we already mentioned, Elon Musk owes that billion dollars if the company decides to terminate because Elon Musk isn't going to fulfill his duties under the agreement. Well, he announced to the world he's not going to fulfill his duties to actually facilitate the agreement. So if he's wrong here, if this isn't a good argument in a court and the court says, all right, that wasn't a good argument, then what he's actually done is breached first. He announced to the world, I'm not going to do this deal anymore. The company can terminate the deal because he said that and can go after that billion dollars if he didn't fall under the proper provisions of the contract to actually terminate, right? And we're going to look at that along with section 6.4 here. On the other hand, They could instead go to the court and say, he acknowledged this merger agreement. He knew what he was getting into. He's a sophisticated party. We have duties of good faith and fair dealing here, and he is messing around with what he's requesting. He's asking for impossible things, and he's doing all these various things, which I'm not speaking to on a factual basis, but this is what Twitter could argue. And you, the court of chancery of Delaware, should make him finish this deal because otherwise you've taken our shareholders for a ride. You put us in a very bad position where we had to meet our fiduciary duties because everything looked above board before you started acting crazy and making these requests. And now here we are. Where you come out on that question as a part of this video or this sequence of events is largely going to depend on how you feel about the requests Elon Musk made and how you feel about the way Twitter is operating. I am not sophisticated enough in these particular questions about the analytics and how monetizable active users are determined to better inform any of you as to whether Elon Musk's requests are legitimate or are they going too far for this kind of context. I'm just here to establish that they can, in fact, do that. You can have a buyer that the court finds is acting crazy specifically to get out of a deal, and the court can make that deal go forward. We're going to talk about that at the end of this video. Mr. Musk and his financial advisors at Morgan Stanley have been requesting critical information from Twitter as far back as May 9th, 2022, and repeatedly since then on the relationship between Twitter's disclosed active user figures and the prevalence of false or spam accounts on the platform. If there were ever any doubt as to the nature of these information requests, the May 25th letter made clear that Mr. Musk's goal was to understand how many of Twitter's claimed active users were in fact fake or spam accounts. That letter noted that Items 1.03 to 1.13 of the diligence request list contain high priority requests for enterprise data and other information intended to enable Mr. Musk and his advisors to make an independent assessment of the prevalence of fake or spam accounts on Twitter's platform. That thing we just said, we're gonna repeat it because we can quote it in the letters that we sent. The letter then provided Twitter with a detailed list of requests to this effect. Since then, Mr. Musk has provided numerous additional follow-up requests, all aimed at filling the gaps in the incomplete information that Twitter provided in response to his broad requests for information relating to Twitter's reported active user counts and reported estimates of false and spam accounts. And then you get a footnote, footnotes, big deal. Mr. Musk sought the same information in letters dated June 6th, June 17th, June 29th. Here they're trying to establish a record, right? Mr. Musk didn't come out of this out of nowhere, demand all this crazy stuff and say, you can't give it to me, I'm out. We made the request on May 9th. We made the request in late May. We made the request on June 6th, June 17th, June 29th, and on and on and on. We were using reasonable good faith efforts to get this deal across the finish line. And that's important if you're before a judge. In each of these letters, Mr. Musk referenced his information rights under section 6.4. Twitter has thus been on notice of the information sought by Mr. Musk and the contractual basis for these requests for two months. For the past month, Mr. Musk has been clear that he views Twitter's non-responsiveness as a material breach of the merger agreement, giving him the right to terminate the merger agreement if uncured, if it's not fixed. Thus, Mr. Musk has been clear about his requests, his right to seek such information, and his view regarding Twitter's material breach of the merger agreement. For example, In our letter to you dated June 29th, 2022, we referenced Mr. Musk's request in the May 25th letter for information that would allow him to make an independent assessment of the prevalence of fake or spam accounts on Twitter's platform because Twitter, by its own admission, provided only incomplete data that was not sufficient to perform such an independent assessment. And then they use a quote from Twitter's response letter, noting that the information Twitter was agreeing to provide was insufficient to perform the spam analysis that Mr. Musk purports to wish to do the June 29th letter endeavored to be even more specific and to reduce the burden of the original request by identifying a specific subset of high-priority information responsive to Mr. Musk's prior requests for Twitter to immediately make available. So you can see the rhetorical fight already. That what Twitter seems to be saying is Mr. Musk is asking for this stuff to do an analytical equation of some kind. We don't have that information ready. We're getting you what we can get to you. They even say purports to wish to do in their letter rather than wishes to do. And Skadden Arps and Elon Musk say, no, you're not getting us anything that we need. And you're in violation of 6.4. Notwithstanding these repeated requests over the past two months, Twitter has still failed to provide much of the data and information responsive to Mr. Musk's repeated requests, including but not limited to, one, information related to Twitter's process for auditing the inclusion of spam and fake accounts in active user accounts. So he wants the audited process. What are you doing to actually figure this out? The June 29th letter identified specific data necessary to enable Mr. Musk to identify and verify Twitter's representations regarding the number of active users on its platform, including... The daily global active user count since October of 2020, information regarding the sampling population for their active user count, including whether the active user population used for auditing spam and false accounts is the same as the population used for quarterly reporting. Outputs of each step of the sampling process For each day during the weeks of January 30th to June 19th, documentation or other guidance provided to contractor agents used for auditing the active user samples, information regarding the user interface of Twitter's ADAP tool and any internal tools used by contractors and the active user audit sampling information, including anonymized information identifying the contractor agents and quality analysts that reviewed each sampled account, the designation given by each contractor agent and quality analyst, and the current status of any accounts labeled as compromised. Now, again, that is a very detailed list of information. If you're going to spend $40 billion, you're allowed to be somewhat detailed, but Twitter can answer at least some of this and say, maybe that doesn't exist. To the extent that Twitter is asked to create things out of whole cloth. They can have a defensive point on that. 6.4 doesn't obligate them to work for Elon Musk. It obligates them to provide access to and the information that exists as it stands today. It also isn't really talking here about kind of analytics presentations that Elon Musk and his team are. So if you're not on Elon Musk's side, as you look at this particular issue, you could argue that Twitter is trying to be responsive and failing to do so because the requests are so detailed and what Twitter might describe as ridiculous. Section two here, Elon Musk also asked for and didn't receive information related to Twitter's process for identifying and suspending spam and fake accounts. He wants to know the methodology and performance data relating to the identification and suspension of spam and false accounts. He says he doesn't get that and that some calls that he had with Twitter made him suspicious. In fact, later in the letter, he'll say that it appears to be an ad hoc process with really no scientific or other project management planning going into it. And he says that in order to slam and put shade on Twitter at the end of this letter, but he says he doesn't get any information on it whatsoever. It's possible Twitter doesn't have it. And again, if Twitter doesn't have it, if Twitter is just operating in a way that maybe isn't great, then that's at least a some kind of defense for actually providing this information. We don't have it. We don't use it. Our methodology is we figure it out as we go. And you don't have to like that, but it might be what the truth of the matter is. Number three, daily measures of the active users for the past eight quarters. Presumably that should be actually pretty easy. So I don't know why Twitter didn't respond to that board materials related to Twitter's calculations. Again, also something that should be pretty easy. And then materials related to Twitter's financial condition, which also should be easy. But here, Elon Musk maybe is pressing a little too hard. Says to that end, Mr. Musk requested on June 17th, a variety of board materials, including a working bottoms up financial model for 2022, a budget for 2022, an updated draft plan or budget, and a working copy of Goldman Sachs valuation model underlying its fairness opinion. Twitter has provided only a PDF copy of Goldman Sachs final board presentation. But one thing to note here is June 17th, 2022, the June 17th letter, the June 17th letter. Yes, they do have letters that are out there asking for other information as early as they say, May 9th, 2022. But if you're defending Twitter on this, you might argue that these were two parties that maybe don't see eye to eye. Twitter isn't thrilled about selling to Elon Musk and maybe Elon Musk at the time, wasn't thrilled about buying Twitter, but that are otherwise trying to meet in the middle in some fashion. Elon Musk keeps asking for new and different information. He says he's trying to make it easier to simplify the burden. But if it's different, it might just be different. We don't have to take Elon Musk or his counsel's word for it. And that's continuing through the end of June. So by all accounts, from even a third party perspective, Twitter and Elon Musk are still communicating and Can you even hold some of this stuff from the June 17th letter against Twitter if, as we'll see in the contract, they have a period of time with which to respond to any claimed breach, right? In short, Twitter has not provided information that Mr. Musk has requested for nearly two months, even though a lot of what was said in the previous pages doesn't indicate that all of this was asked for for two months exactly, notwithstanding his repeated detailed clarifications intended to simplify Twitter's identification collection and disclosure of the most relevant information sought in Mr. Musk's original request. So again, clarifications. There were changes. Skadden Arp says they were to make things easier. Twitter might disagree. To the extent they are changes, does that tie back to the original timing for when they are claiming breach, right? Because when can Elon Musk terminate under the merger agreement? If the company, Twitter? shall have breached or failed to perform any of its representations, warranties, covenants, or other agreements, the promises that it makes, set forth in this agreement, which breach or failure to perform would give rise to the failure of any condition in this other section, which just like on the billion dollar guarantee side says the company shall have done everything that it is supposed to do in order to get to closing. And it's not capable of being cured or is not cured by the company on or before the earlier date of the termination date and the date that is 30 calendar days following parents' delivery of written notice to the company of such breach, which raises a secondary question here, right? Their opinion is that the June 6th letter constituted notice of breach. I will say reasonable minds can differ on that. Generally speaking, if you've got $40 billion on the line and you want the cure period to start running, it is advisable to make clear that this is an official notice of breach and your timer runs out on day X. Here, it would probably be June July 6th or July 7th, depending on how counts are done uh, in the calendar. And so you look at that and you say, this doesn't actually say that. This says this is a clear material breach, and Mr. Musk reserves all rights resulting therefrom. One could reasonably argue that if Mr. Musk intends to terminate the deal, then you'd get that notice of breach. You say, okay, now your 30-day period runs. Uh, Now, you can argue that this is a notice, that this is a paragraph that says you're in breach, But it isn't as clean as it would otherwise be if you were really trying to dot your I's and cross your T's on all of this. So Skadden Arps is out there defending their client, arguing for Elon Musk, but it might not be the way that you would ordinarily do it and make things crystal clear that if this isn't fixed, if we don't get X, Y, and Z by date Y, then we are going to otherwise terminate this agreement. Instead, it's kind of implied But based on everything that's described in the multiple letters that are exchanged here, it's a little bit unclear when that clock should have started running, whether Twitter thought it was being responsive, whether it was trying to cure the thing. And I would argue that it looks like from some of the board responses, or at least one of them that we'll look at at the end of this video, Twitter certainly believes that they were trying to be responsive throughout this process. And whether or not that is in fact the case might well come down to facts and circumstances and an analysis in a court of law. While Twitter has provided some information, says counsel, that information has come with strings attached, use limitations, or other artificial formatting features, which has rendered some of the information minimally useful to Mr. Musk and his advisors. So here they're arguing that effectively, sure, they turned over some things, which is what 6.4 requires, but it really requires, for good faith and fair dealing purposes, for that information to be turned over in a useful way. For example, when Twitter finally provided access to the eight developer APIs first explicitly requested by Mr. Musk in the May 25th letter, those APIs contained a rate limit lower than what Twitter provides to its largest enterprise customers. Twitter only offered to provide Mr. Musk with the same level of access as some of its customers, not its owners, after we explained that throttling the rate limit prevented Mr. Musk and his advisors from performing the analysis that he wished to conduct in any reasonable period of time. Additionally, those APIs contained an artificial cap on the number of queries that Mr. Musk and his team can run regardless of the rate limit, an issue that initially prevented Mr. Musk and his advisors from completing an analysis of the data in any reasonable period of time. Mr. Musk raised this issue as soon as he became aware of it in the first paragraph of the June 29th letter. June 29th is like a week ago. We have just been informed by our data experts that Twitter has placed an artificial cap on the number of searches our experts can perform with this data, which is now preventing Mr. Musk and his team from doing their analysis. That cap was not removed until July 6th after Mr. Musk demanded its removal for a second time. And again, yes, 6.4 obligates them to turn over information. It requires them to open up the doors to their books and records. But I don't know how Twitter can respond to something that comes up on June 29th back in May 9th or when the June 6th letter comes up. And I'm really not on either party's side here because it's very difficult from the outside and from a letter from only one party to determine how reasonable these requests were, what these communications looked like. But even just reading between the lines of what is described here, it strikes me that these two parties were working on getting information to each other, especially from Twitter to Elon Musk's team. And this was being used right now as effectively a pretext that you're adding all of this stuff on that comes after the fact that you're unhappy if we're treating you with all good faith and fair dealing ourselves and all reasonable doubt to say, okay, you want this MAU data from a month ago. You didn't get it. You declared breach on the June 6th letter. And if you didn't get it by July 6th, then you can terminate the agreement. But adding all the rest of this is not as convincing to me as Skadden Arps might otherwise want it to be. Based on the foregoing refusal to provide information that Mr. Musk has been requesting since May 9th, 2022, Twitter is in breach of section 6.4 and 6.11 of the merger agreement. Now that's interesting in and of itself. They want to take it back to May 9th, when if we actually look at what's required of them, they have to give 30 days calendar calendar days to cure following parents' delivery of written notice to the company of such breach. So unless Elon Musk is opening up the May 9th calls and writing down a transcript that says you're in breach right now, you can't go back to that point in time to give yourself termination rights. And yes, this is what lawyers do. This is why people hate us. But we can read between the lines because we're here in virtual gone and we can look at these things. May 9th is not the date. June 6th might be, but what it applies to is significantly more narrow than what Skadden Arps is arguing in this letter. Despite public speculation on this point, Mr. Musk did not waive his right to review Twitter's data and information simply because he chose not to seek this data and information before entering into the merger agreement. In fact, he negotiated access and information rights within the merger agreement precisely so that he could review data and information that is important to Twitter's business before financing and completing the transaction. Now, I was just hard on Musk counsel here a sentence ago, but this to me is exactly correct. That the people who were saying he waived due diligence don't know what they're talking about. That within a merger agreement, you have a period of time between signing and closing. You do have those covenants. Twitter appears to have potentially stretched some of those covenants because they didn't want to turn over certain information. But where the actual breach occurs isn't very obvious. It's not black and white. And so Elon Musk and the Twitter board, Twitter company, look like they're careening for a litigation kind of standoff, if not an outright settlement where, in all likelihood, Elon Musk would pay money. As Twitter has been on notice of its breach since at least June 6th, 2022, here we're backing off from the May 9th date, any cure period afforded to Twitter under the merger agreement has now lapsed. That's that 30-day concept. Accordingly, Mr. Musk hereby exercises X holding one's right to terminate the merger agreement and abandon the transaction contemplated thereby. And this letter constitutes formal notice of X holding one's termination of the merger agreement pursuant to section 8.1d1 thereof. Now, interestingly, in that sentence, as you can see, it establishes that Skadden ARPS knows how to state something is a formal notice rather than just kind of intimating that this is the written notice of breach that should otherwise start your cure period running. They know how to say we are formally terminating this because that's very important to communicate in this letter when maybe you don't want them to cure. You don't want them to think the clock is necessarily running, that it's not just bluster in that letter context. So you say this is obviously a breach, but you don't really do it in a form or fashion that's suggestive of a notice in compliance with your termination section. And yeah, now you're really playing in the edges in the shadows and between the lines if you're Elon Musk counsel and, and also if you're Twitter counsel. In addition to the foregoing, so that's the primary breach, Twitter is in breach of the merger agreement because the merger agreement appears to contain materially inaccurate representations. Specifically in the merger agreement, Twitter represented that no documents that Twitter filed with the SEC since January 1st, 2022 included any untrue statement of material fact. That's one of the sections that we pointed out earlier in this playlist. Twitter has repeatedly made statements in such filings regarding the portion of active users that are false or spam, including statements that We have performed an internal review of a sample of accounts and estimate that the average of false or spam accounts during the first quarter of 2022 represented fewer than 5% of our active users during the quarter. And after we determine an account is spam, malicious automation, or fake, we stop counting it in our active users or other related metrics. Mr. Musk relied on this representation in the merger agreement and Twitter's numerous public statements regarding false and spam accounts in its publicly filed SEC documents. When agreeing to enter into the merger agreement, Mr. Musk has the right to seek rescission of the merger agreement in the event these material representations are determined to be false. Now, this is interesting in and of itself. He doesn't need to seek rescission. The actual contract within it has a provision that says, if the reps aren't true, you don't have to close the deal. This is one of the other provisions in that termination section. Each of the representations and warranties of the company shall be true and correct as of the closing date. So within the paperwork of the contract, Elon Musk can use a false representation to get out of the deal, just like he can use a false covenant, a false promise. Skadden Arps and Elon Musk decide not to do that here. They don't put it in that bucket, even though they could, and instead argue essentially that this contract doesn't exist that there wasn't a meeting of the minds, that they induced me into entering an agreement on fraudulent pretenses. And so I have a right of rescission outside of the terms, the letters and the words that make up the contract. I didn't have a truthful understanding of what Twitter was because Twitter deliberately and willfully lied to me. That's broader, that's stronger. They don't even need to do this in order to get out of the deal. And yet they're putting all of their ducks in a row on this to try to attack on every specific angle. Although Twitter has not yet provided complete information to Mr. Musk that would enable him to do a complete and comprehensive review of spam and fake accounts on Twitter's platform, here comes the shade, he has been able to partially and preliminarily analyze the accuracy of Twitter's disclosure regarding its active users. While this analysis remains ongoing, all indications suggest that several of Twitter's public disclosures regarding its active users are either false or materially misleading. Elon Musk just filed a public document that we're reading here and others are reading elsewhere that says all indications suggest that Twitter's public disclosures, under which they are obligated by law to tell the truth and not be misleading, are either false or materially misleading. Here is Elon Musk essentially saying you're in violation of SEC rules and you are lying to your stockholders and the people that are looking at your information. Wow. First, although Twitter has consistently represented in securities filings that fewer than 5% of its active users are false or spam accounts, based on the information provided by Twitter to date, it appears that Twitter is dramatically understating the proportion of spam and false accounts represented in its active user count. Dramatically. Preliminary analysis by Mr. Musk's advisors of the information provided by Twitter to date causes Mr. Musk to strongly believe that the proportion of false and spam accounts included in the reported active user count is wildly higher than five percent now that doesn't strike me like legal language that doesn't strike me that wildly in particular like something the attorneys would put in there on their own accord that sounds like a client that wants to have wildly in that sentence and you do see some lawyering some legalese it's not Guaranteed that all this is true, Mr. Musk strongly believes it based on information that isn't quite complete being analyzed, but we think this is what it looks like. Second, Twitter's disclosure that it ceases to count fake or spam users in its active user count when it determines that those users are fake appears to be false. Not false, appears to be. Instead, we understand based on Twitter's representations during a June 30th, 2022 call with us, again, just a week ago, that Twitter includes accounts that have been suspended, and thus are known to be fake or spam or inclusive of ones that are fake or spam in its quarterly active user count, even when it is aware that the suspended accounts were included in the active user count for that quarter. Last, Twitter has represented that it is continually seeking to improve our ability to estimate the total number of spam accounts and eliminate them from the calculation of our active users. But Twitter's process for calculating its active users and the percentage of active users comprised of non-monetizable spam accounts appears to be arbitrary and ad hoc. Disclosing that Twitter has a reasoned process for calculating MDAU, the active users, when the opposite is true would be false and misleading. Now that I think is reaching too far, right? This is just an opinion statement that whatever Twitter's process is, is ad hoc and arbitrary, and we don't like it. And what they say in their SEC filings that they're trying to make it better doesn't count. That's too far. The rest of this, is designed to get headlines it's designed to have somebody put up there elon musk says twitter is lying about its active user count and for all hell to rain down on the board of directors of twitter which may be deserved if this is true but it is a wild paragraph to see in a letter like this and it calls into question the entire reasoning behind the process that elon musk has engaged in now for the better part of this 2022 Twitter's representation in the merger agreement regarding the accuracy of its SEC disclosures relating to false and spam accounts may have also caused, or is reasonably likely to result in, a company material adverse effect. So we're clear, because we just said they lied to the SEC, when the SEC hears that, when the SEC finds out, well, that could cause a problem. What's a company material adverse effect? It's any change, event, effect, or circumstance which has resulted in, or reasonably be expected to result in a material adverse effect on the business financial condition or results of operations of the company. Now, yes, lawyers do this a lot. We just defined company material adverse effect as a material adverse effect that affects the company. Not the world's most useful definition, but for our purposes, it means something bad is coming down the pipe and we have the right to walk away if there's a company material adverse effect that happens to the company, such as, I don't know, discovery that they've been lying to the SEC for a lot of quarters, if this is in fact true, as Mr. Musk said has put forth. While Mr. Musk and his advisors continue to investigate the exact nature and extent of this event, Mr. Musk has reason to believe that the true number of false or spam accounts on Twitter's platform is substantially higher than the amount of less than 5% represented by Twitter in its SEC filings. So it's wildly higher. It's substantially higher. It is higher. They want this to be the news item that you take away. Finally, Twitter also did not comply with its obligations under section 6.1 of the merger agreement to seek and obtain consent before deviating from its obligation to conduct its business in the ordinary course and preserve substantially intact the material components of its current business organization. And here we see exactly that. Whenever you've got a difference between signing and closing, there's going to be a covenant, a provision, a promise that says that whoever's getting sold but isn't yet sold can't screw up the business. Right, We've talked about this with respect, especially to Microsoft's pending acquisition of Activision Blizzard, where they've got a big provision that says, you won't do anything to upend the Apple cart. You won't sell out your assets from under it. You won't do that kind of thing. And I'll be honest, the way Twitter has operated over the past month or two, I have openly questioned whether or not they were in compliance with this on the assumption as a third party that if they were doing something significant, they must have gotten permission from Elon Musk and his team. Generally speaking, you can do whatever you need to do to operate your business if you get consent from your buyer. They own you when this is all said and done, so they get a seat at the table, even if they don't control you only at signing before closing. So when Elon Musk says, "Uh uh-oh, we think you have a problem with ordinary course issues, it's because of news items like the one you might have seen yesterday. Twitter's conduct in firing two key high-ranking employees, its revenue product lead, and the general manager of consumer, as well as announcing on July 7th that it was laying off a third of its talent acquisition team, implicates the ordinary course provision. I saw this article yesterday. I almost did a video on it that said, here's how this works with the merger agreement, that there must be consent given or else they're going to be in a lot of trouble because you can't just lay off huge sections of your operational workforce if you don't get permission from the buyer. And at least in this letter, Elon Musk says, they didn't ask me. And so that's a problem for their ordinary course provision. And you add all these things up and it really does look like there's a potential problem here. Now, a lot of this comes down to whether or not Twitter was responsive in its information requests, whether Elon Musk changing it, clarifying it, simplifying it, actually was doing that, or whether it was resetting the timer since he was changing what he was requesting. But all the rest of this leads to at least a a working understanding that there might have been legitimacy to his walking away and terminating the deal. And most importantly, from his perspective, avoiding that billion-dollar payday. Now, that's the letter. That's the situation. Elon Musk, deal over. I'm out. Not so fast, my friend, says the Twitter board. Or as Brett Taylor tweeted out shortly after Elon Musk's announcement, the Twitter board is committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon with Mr. Musk And plans to pursue legal action to enforce the merger agreement. Not to go get his guarantee. Not to go and terminate this agreement under our rights and go get a billion dollars. To enforce the merger agreement. We're going to sell to Elon Musk or we're going to die trying. We are confident we will prevail in the Delaware court of chancery. Now, folks have asked me about this. I mentioned it earlier in this video. The court can absolutely decide to force the deal. And I'll just bring up an example of how this looks uh, in in practice, right? And this is an example, I think, from about a year ago. And it's about, uh, I think, somebody trying to buy a a cake decorating company. It says the buyers lost their appetite for the deal shortly after signing it as government entities issued stay-at-home orders around the country and DecoPak's weekly sales declined precipitously. Although DecoPack's highly experienced management team predicted that sales would recover rapidly, the buyers were less confident. They had buyer's remorse almost immediately, right? Happened a bunch in the pandemic. Fearing that people would no longer desire decorated cakes to celebrate life events while forced to quarantine and social distance, the buyers began to question the business wisdom of the transaction. Problem being, they had already signed it up. Rather than use reasonable best efforts to work towards a definitive credit agreement, financing, the buyers called their litigation counsel and began evaluating ways to get out of the deal. Without input from DecoPack management, they prepared a draconian reforecast of DecoPack's projected sales based on uninformed and largely unexplained assumptions that were inconsistent with real-time sales data. So the court can go in and say, whatever you just said, Elon Musk, however you just analyzed things, whatever you just requested, all of this is BS, that it's clear that if we go through Discover and we get through the process and determine that this is in fact the case, that you just had cold feet, you had buyer's remorse, you looked at this as a good way to get out and it wasn't legitimate and you never explained how you came to an understanding that it was wildly above 5% or otherwise. If you don't do that, the court can double guess you. They can say, hey, I don't know that that's in fact what you're doing and I start to worry if you have clean hands. They sent this reforecast to their lenders with demands for more favorable debt financing terms. When the lenders refused the buyer's demands, the buyers informed the seller that debt financing was no longer available. On April 8th, the buyers told the seller they would not close because debt financing remained unavailable. Meanwhile, DecoPAC rebounded. And at trial, this is actually a post-trial kind of discussion, the plaintiffs proved that DecoPAC did not breach the material adverse effect representation, the one that we were just looking at with respect to SEC disclosures given the durational insignificance and corresponding immateriality of the decline in sales. One thing you don't see in that SCAD and ARPS letter is, okay, let's say you're right. How does that actually impact the value of the company? Now, you might think that that's self-evident. If we don't know the number of users and we use an advertising model to actually make revenue, it's self-evident that that's a problem with what the purchase price for the company is. But they don't bother to reference it at all, at least in letter form. They also proved That even if it was reasonable to expect that these sales declines would give rise to a material adverse effect, the seller-friendly exception for events related to government orders applied and DecoPack had not suffered disproportionately to comparable companies. Applying the prevention doctrine, this decision deemed the debt financing condition met because the buyers contributed materially to lack of debt financing by breaching their reasonable best efforts obligation. Said another way, the court of chancery can go in there and say, yeah, you're faking it you didn't try to get your debt financing. You didn't try to close this deal. You threw all these roadblocks in. You threw all these landmines. You're not serious about this. You didn't explain your analysis. And so because we care about deal certainty, because good faith and fair dealing applies to all these things, because you have a reasonable obligation to actually meet what you've promised in your contract. Well, then yes, they have an obligation to provide you with information. You have an obligation to actually be using that information to get a deal done and not to try to stop one. Chalking up a victory for deal certainty, this post-trial decision resolves all issues in favor of the seller and orders the buyers to close on the purchase agreement. Buyers who, at least in this particular fact pattern, don't actually have financing lined up to actually buy the company. Don't know how this actually finished up, but I did want to give an example for what this looks like from the Delaware Court of Chancery's perspective. They can analyze the facts of what happened here. They can go and look and say, okay you're lying. This isn't serious or this is serious. And Twitter, you're not being responsive. He has to have the right to get this information and you weren't doing things the right way. Whether that comes out on Twitter's side or Elon Musk's side is going to depend a lot on the facts and circumstances of what just happened over the past three months. But it certainly seems like Twitter, at least in the immediate aftermath of Elon Musk's statement, means to fight this to the bitter end and get this deal done come hell or high water. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy content like this, discussing the business and law of technology, software, social media platforms, video games, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We can't do it without support from viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Utreon up where you can support us just like a Patreon, but more resources get to us. Or if you prefer the Patreon model, we've got that. We've got YouTube membership. We've got all the goodies. Otherwise, if you don't like any of those options, just subscribing, telling your friends, ringing bells, upvotes, downvotes, leaving comments. All the stuff that makes YouTube happy is so, so helpful to making this channel grow. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only.